Hey, thanks everyone of you who came out uh, to Hope for Canby on Friday night to support our community. It's good for us. It is good for us. It's right for us to pull together like that when our tragedy strikes twice every year. Um, you know, God's vision for the church, uh, for Bethany Church, is to be a church uh, in the community and for the community. That's our vision. As God connects, as God connects that, our great commission to make disciples with the great commandment to love your neighbor. The two go hand in hand. Uh, the great commission, the great commandment. The two go hand in hand. So thanks for coming out to help encourage that. Well, have you noticed when a trial comes into your life, enters your life, what is the what's the first thing you tend to ask? Why? I heard it. Yeah. Why? Why? Why is this happening? I mean, the book of Ruth. Naomi has all these things stacked up against her. It says in back, we the first few chapters, trial after tri- uh, trial, and she questions why, why, in her bitterness. Remember how chapter one ended? Naomi had lost her husband, her two sons, and she'd returned to her homeland, Bethlehem, from Moab, with her widowed daughter-in-law, and she said, "This, do not call me Naomi." Call me Mara, bitter. The Almighty has dealt dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why? There it is. Why? Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? There's a big why. God's hand is upon me. Why? Don't call me uh, Naomi. Big why there. She knows God is sovereign, but she's lost sight of his goodness. We always ask, why? Why is this happening? In fact, if you think about it, even those that people who don't believe in God or maybe don't have a very firm belief in God, when trials come, when they come, even those people still ask, those that might not even trust in a God, why? Because they know that something Behind what is happening in their life, their trial, there's some bigger purpose, maybe it's financial, maybe it's some why. There's got to be some answer. I think the human heart asks why, because we know there is a purpose behind the why. We even ask it if there was. It's actually one of the pieces of being made in the image of God, is that we ask that question, why? But it's clear, I think it's clear, you and I don't always have the Some things we may wait not have an answer until eternity. We think of the trials in our lives. William Cowper, he was an 18th century British hymn writer and poet and, and, and evangelical Christian at the time, you might even say, who struggled with depression. He struggled with doubt all of his life. And he was actually even institutionalized at one point. And it's his great hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, the title of the hymn, that he gives us really a poetic summary of the book of Ruth. Take a look at it. Here's a couple lines. He says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds and so much dread are big with mercy. Who shall dare the blessed land? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind the frowning providence. 
summary of the book of Ruth there. In other words, what looks like dark clouds, from our perspective, the gray clouds he talks about, will break and will shower mercy on your home. It's being used for your good. It's being used for your joy. And the sunny face of God will break through even if he is in a moment using the trials of your life. In fact, everything in life shaped you, to mold you, to trust your choice. So our question this morning is, do we truly believe that God is weaving together all the pieces of our lives, the big, the small, the mundane, even circumstances, for his grace and story and our joy? This morning as we close the book of Ruth, we're going to look through those dark clouds of providence and see Three rays, they kind of call them. Three light rays, sunlight shine rays, and providential light that tell us this this morning. Yes, God is for us. That's the answer we're going to see. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. We're going to work through some points today. Three rays, we're calling them. Have, have your Bible, your smartphone, your tablet open to Ruth 4. As we see this first ray of providential light is this. The Redeemer who put others before self. That's our first ray. The Redeemer who put others before self. We last left Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Remember chapter 3 on the, the threshing floor where they, they got the wheat and did their work. And Ruth had followed, remember Naomi's risky plan, maybe even unwise plan, to go to Boaz at night while he was asleep on the floor at work and just, just see what he'll do, Ruth. See how he'll respond. Just show up there and, and see what happens. And Ruth, as we remember, she jumps right in, doesn't she? And she goes a bit further, and she doesn't just wait. She proposes marriage to him. She proposes. Remember now, Ruth is a Gentile who's placed herself under the wings of God. Chapter 2 told us she's become a covenant woman of God's people. And she proposes to Boaz, take me under your wings. That's where we left her. And Boaz responded, I will do for you all you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know you are trustworthy. Excellent woman of integrity. And what a great picture last week we had of that kinsman redeemer. Do you remember that? That picture of the kinsman redeemer last week, the one who could redeem a dead man's lands and widow and family through marriage and restore them to the covenant. And we're cheering, yes, yes. Marry her, right? Hopefully, I would hope so. We'd be rooting for them. We'd be rooting for them. Marry her. Redeem this family. Save them from the absolute dire circumstances they're in. But as each chapter has had, there's been a setback every time. You know this play through. The movie where crisis comes in, takes place, and it raises the tension of the narrative, of the drama. There's another man to find out how to lose. Not like the Hollywood version. You know what would be happening in the Hollywood version. Not like that. But there is another man. According to the law, there's a closer kinsman than Boaz, or a closer kinsman uh, than Boaz to Elimelech, the dead man. Naomi just sees husband there. Closer than Boaz. Boaz and integrity on cue. He's the redeemer who puts others before self. 
So we end up in chapter 4 now, it's a scene at the gate. They come to the gate, and they're there. The gate is where official uh, city or town business might take place. It's kind of a, a busy, bustling place. So they're there at the gate. But this is a really complex situation. Because if you think now on the scale, there are two widows in this story. There are two widows, Naomi and Ruth. Two widows here, not just one. Both Elimelech, Naomi's niece, and Malon, Ruth's niece, both of them need a kinsman to take care of their family. Not only to buy the land and to farm it, but to raise an heir up now, to inherit the property we talked about last week, to keep it in the family name, so that this is part of the covenant and the blessing, and it's all tied to the land providing. As you see in the story, it's, it's too much. I'm going to call him Mr. So-and-so. Here's what we see. Mr. So-and-so is a no-go. Mr. So-and-so is a no-go. His nearer kinsman comes by the gate, he walks by the gate, and Boaz says, hey, would you come, would you sit down, I've got something I, I, I need to talk to you about, and he goes over to set his situation. And the writer of Ruth doesn't think very highly of this man. Here's how we know why. Because basically, the way we translate what he's called in Hebrew is Mr. So-and-so, or Mr. Such-and-Such. That's about all he gets here in this story. Mr. So-and-so comes by. Uh, so Boaz explains now to Mr. So-and-so, and he says, hey, he comes back, I'll buy the land, sure. I, you know, I'll get this land, I'll grab it, fill out my portfolio, whatever. You know, give me this land, let's go, let's get it. But when he mentions marrying Ruth, he raises his hand. And the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I, in, I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption instead, for I am Ruth's servant. Now lest we think, I want us to be careful. Lest we think Ruth is being reduced to a piece of property here, she is not. We must remember, she wants to marry Boaz. Her heart is in this. She is in this. She wants to. She too is a God-saturated woman who wants to also serve Naomi, as we do see in Ruth. She's all in here for it. It's going to cost the Redeemer a lot. It's going to cost the Redeemer the one who marries, the one who redeems the land, the one who marries Ruth, is going to absorb a lot of costs here. A lot of costs. And we see Mr. So-and-so waver, don't we? Ah, yeah, I don't know. That's going to kind of wreck my inheritance. And so in our today terms, it would mean this. Boaz was going to be changing a lot of diapers. Driving to a lot of soccer games. Having a mother-in-law speak. All of those things. It's going to cost the Redeemer a lot. A lot. And that was just too much for Mr. So-and-so. Too much for him. He's a pastor. He's a no-go. And here's what we see. Mr. So-and-so is like, he's like the man keeping the law without love. He's the man keeping the law without love. Sure, as long as it benefits me and I don't have to give too much, but God wants us to serve and obey out of love, out of an overflow of the heart, out of love. You know, love is not less than obeying the law. Love requires obedience. 
keeping God's law, but it's also so much more. Jesus said, you heard it said, but what did he say? I say, it's so much more. Love is willing to risk. Love is willing to face loss. Love is willing to give up things as Boaz knew he would for the sake of so-and-so kid's clothing. But Ruth has done that, hasn't she? For Naomi, left her hometown, left her people, went to a place where she probably she was despised and hated on. And now Boaz is doing that for Naomi and Ruth as he comes along and he says, I, I will absorb the cost. Boaz says, this is so unfair. It's not fair, Boaz. It's not fair. Boaz absorbs the cost of Christ's care Boaz absorbs the cost as Christ absorbed our sin. A true redeemer, a true redeemer is a redeemer who loves. It's not just out of compulsion. It's just not, not just out of duty. Who goes beyond the bare minimum for the benefit of others, to serve the other. And yet I know that you face this too. I'm tempted at times to live like Mr. So-and-so. And weigh every situation, well, how much is this thing going to cost me? And what's the return going to be on my investment? How much is it going to cost? And then I kind of, well, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. Someone else will step in. Or think about an argument where there needs to be a redemption of sorts. I'm not going to go to him first. He's got to come to me first. I'm, I'm not taking that on. He's, you know, he's got to make the first move. I am not making the first move. He's got to do it. Boaz, he risks it. He leans in. He jumps in. He moves forward and he says, I will redeem. What if Christ had thought the same way as Mr. So-and-so? What if his response would have been something like this? Jesus said, I cannot redeem my own flesh, lest I impair Take my right of redemption for myself. I cannot redeem. What if Jesus would have said that? Father, I, I cannot redeem them myself. I, I'll have to share too much. It's going to cost too much. I'll have to split my inheritance. Someone else is going to have to do it, Father. But he did do it. He did do it. What did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will, Father. I will redeem them. I will pay the debt. I will absorb the cost. Here's what we see in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his riches. That is redemption. Here's what it is. Christ takes your sin on himself. He absorbs the wrath of God reserved for you, and it's poured out on him on the cross. That's redemption. That you and I deserve for real sins, for real people, and he gives us grace. He gives us everything. That's redemption. When we trust him and repent and believe that that is what it took place at, at that cross, that's redemption. That's redemption. Talk about a kinsman redeemer that paid a lot. Boaz paid a lot. Boaz had to make the sacrifice. The 
this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life what we know. And Boaz points the finger. God takes Boaz and says, yes, it's a great story. Yes, Boaz was a man of integrity. Yes, he was a man of God. But don't stop there. Look at him and look to the better, truer Boaz, that phrase we've lost so many times. Look to Jesus. He points us there as encouraging words. But on the surface, we don't look, you know, reading the story, we don't look that part of a huge redemption. A huge redemption. This family line birthed Christ. Now let's begin a couple things. Boaz is part of something way bigger than us. But for us it means that you and I will relive in the mundane things, the little decisions of life where we serve and obey and trust, the mundane things are actually sacred things trivial. The little ways you've served in your life are connected, as Boaz and Ruth and Naomi were, to God's larger story. There's a bigger picture going on. How many of you have cared for aching parents? Or worked in the field, so to speak. Had a hard job. Had a baby. Fell in love. Proposed. Got married. In this story, it's all connected to eternity. And it is in our lives, too. It's all connected to God's bigger purpose. It's all connected to his redemption of people. It all has a purpose. Here's what Dean Aldridge said in one of the conclaves I have to read. He says, our faithfulness, even in the little things now, the mundane things, our faithfulness becomes the stage for God to perform mighty things. Through us, God works out his redemptive plan. And it's not as if all our decisions force God's hand, but he prepares the soil to work and sponsor human activity. And God is working together with our decisions and what we do to bring about on this stage, just like with Ruth and Naomi, God's big plan. Big plan. So our first ray of light, this redeemer who serves, this pattern of redemption. Here's our second. Please see Naomi as a new hope. God brings famine and fullness to broken lives. It's the title, actually, of Ulrich's commentary I just quoted from. I love the title, Famine and Fullness. I thought we'd use it for one of our points today. God brings Naomi from famine to fullness now. The story will come full circle. The people witness this, what is going on as Boaz uh, redeems and serves this sacrificial service. And they almost begin to notice. Actually, I think they do. They begin to notice. We're witnessing a divine miracle. This is something different. And they kind of catch it from Naomi. They start to reference all this Old Testament stuff and these Old Testament names. Look at verse 11. If you got it open. Chapter 4, verse 11 in your Bible. What do they say? They watch this proposal and this uh, coming to fruition. And all the people, verse 11, who were at the gate, the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. 
together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, the king our Lord of Judah, because the offspring of the Lord was with you by this young woman. The people put, they, they take Naomi and Ruth and they kind of wrap them into the context of Rachel and Leah. You know who they weren't? They were the wives of Jacob, the one who birthed the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. It says there, they built the house of, of Israel. They're placing Naomi and Ruth, these women, especially Ruth, into this context of Rachel and Leah. Something big's happening here. Like the days of Rachel and Leah, may God build the house, they say. Like those old days. Because remember, what are these days? You know what this time is? Judgment. It's horrible. This is not the days of the big built house. This is the days of scattered people doing whatever is right in their own eyes all the time. They're saying, maybe God's up to something again. Maybe he's up to something big again. Look, Rachel, Leah, Ruth, maybe something big's happening here in this little town of Bethlehem. But with Caleb and Naomi, of some land let's think of the arc of Naomi's life for a moment you know the arc is that story of life and family decisions let's just think for a moment as we look at Naomi and Ruth she moves away from her home she loses her husband she loses her two sons she's destitute she's poor She's without hope. She's without a future. She's a woman in a man's culture, unable to run out to the grocery store, unable to run out and grab a job somewhere. It's, it's dire. She decides to move back to Bethlehem because the famine's over, and things begin to change, didn't they? Things begin to fill up. What was empty now begins to fill up. Ruth, this rock of a woman, clings to Naomi because she's clung to Naomi's God. Food is restored to them. Boaz comes along. He just happens to come along. Remember that? He just happens to go into his field. And they're going to be married. And he's going to buy the land. And he's doing it out of love, not out of greed. He loves the God-saturated man, Boaz, because God has loved him. And now Naomi and Ruth, they're being wrapped into this big plan of God's redemption, unfolding and pulled in. Look at verses 13 to 17. Let's read those. One more time because it's shocking and important and helps me this side of the screen. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. She went into her and the Lord gave her conception. Remember, she was barren. She bore a son. The woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renounced in Israel. Big picture it sounds like. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. And your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. She's giving birth to a son. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and he became, he became his nurse. A woman in the neighborhood said, uh, gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. The name shall be Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of Nahor. Now these are generations of Perez. Let's stop there. We'll get to it. We'll read those later. They call, uh, he was the father. It was Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of Nahor. 
healed up. And famine was born. And women rejoiced. And even Ruth alone is worse than Lord's seven sons. Seven's kind of a complete number in the Bible. But how is God working in your life? Taking famine and forming it. Or what looks like dark clouds. How is he taking famine to form it? The gray clouds of providence, maybe the coming showers of mercy or rays uh, of sun. Maybe you're thinking like, I don't know. I can't see it and I never have. And I don't know if I ever will. You know, I'm sitting there hear that and I, I understand that because I really doubt the other day. You know what? I've never seen it. I don't know if I ever will. Have you ever looked at the backside of a cloud? Kind of like a, a map. Those of you, they're kind of, you look at them, they're pictures, they're woven thread. The backside, nobody's going to look at it. It's going to go against the wall. It's an absolute woven mess of, of thread and cord and long ends because they didn't cut them off and tied and, and all, all, all just messiness woven together. The backside kind of looks like the picture, but what is it, kindergarten version? The front? There's no clarity, no real direction. No understanding. It all looks kind of jumbled, woven, jumbled mess of thread. But when you turn it over, ah, it feels this clear vision. It's an absolutely beautiful, stunning picture of a bigger purpose, which you could see when you just look at the back side. That is the light. You live in the backside of the cloud. It's where you live. It's where you move. It's where things happen. It's where we ask why. Naomi lived on the backside of the cloud. Uh, well, in this case here, God began to turn it over for her and show her the front side of the tapestry, the clearer picture for her, from famine to fullness where life begins to fill up. Isn't it just possible, just even give it a little possibility, Someday you will see the front side of the tapestry and say, my God, my God, it was worth it. Every piece, every bit, every stride. I mean, even if it's just a little possibility, once you see the front side of the tapestry, it will greatly enlighten you. Have faith. Trust God. Because he was truly doing that. If, if, if Ruth is about anything, it's about that. But he was doing that in the life of Naomi and Ruth. And he's the same God today. And he's doing it in your life too. It's our second Naomi. She saw her life change. Here's our third one, though. It gets even better. An heir for the ages. An heir for the ages. Pick up with me in 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz, there's our guy, fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. You know, on the one hand, the famine to fullness story of Naomi is, is fantastic. 
he is praising God by the end. Remember, he's healed, he's brought to life, he's, re- he's restored. He's praising God by the end. He's saying he's not only sovereign, but he is good. Her grief has come to an end, and I'm so glad because Naomi went through a lot in this story. It started really bad. It was dark. Her grief has come to an end. But Naomi and Ruth should have no idea what God was up to through this faithful little remnant, during this time of apostasy, the period of the judges, and even the people here that we saw, the people celebrating. They were celebrating, Ruth, you'll be like Leah and Rachel. They could have no idea quite what they were celebrating. We do. We get to look back and see. Well, Boaz and Ruth, they get married, right? They get married, and they have a child, and his name is Obed. And Obed, interestingly enough, means servant. How fitting for this redemption story. Obed is the great-grandfather of Israel's greatest king, King David. So God used a sorrow, a name you might say, usher in peace like no other time in the history of God's people. Ruth, Ruth, a Moabite immigrant. Don't miss that. God uses the weak, the outcast. God loves even the immigrant here. Put that into perspective. Ruth, a Moabite immigrant, is the great-grandmother of Jesus. We're just a generation away from Jesse, David's grandson. God so cares. I mean, look at the genealogy in Matthew. Take a look at it. You'll see it again. And it's, it's coming up. There we go. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. There it is. But Boaz by Rahab. Did you catch that? Rahab was probably Boaz's mother or grandmother. Well, you know, you can't even really get into that today, but I was reading this week again. I forgot. I'm like, oh, Rahab? The line of David and Christ was spared by a Gentile prostitute that barely escapes the destruction of Jericho. That's Rahab. That's a little little side trail there. Salvation is by grace alone. Amen? <laughs> Rahab is Boaz's mother. It's mind-blowing. Do you see the tapestry? The weaving of God here. But then we get to David. And if you know David, we see here that God is working even something bigger than David because he's always working something bigger on the backside of the tapestry. Do you know the promise made to David? It's called the Davidic covenant. Do you know the promise that was made to him when he was king? Here it is, 2 Samuel 7.14. And your house, your kingdom, David, shall be made secure forever throne, David, shall be established forever. But the great King David, as great as he was, he died. And if you think of the history of the Jewish people, they lost the throne. The land was lost. In AD 70, it was destroyed. But the kingdom, the throne of David, would be forever. Solomon died too. All his sons, the kings after, were even much worse. Well, that genealogy in Matthew goes on 
always a kind of conveyance of life, life, of faithfulness, faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz was used to bring King David into the world. And then the one to whom King David points, King Jesus. That's the capital C, the forever king, the true redeemer. I mean, you can't, you can't just make this stuff up. You cannot. So everybody tells you, ah, the Bible's just a bunch of made-up stories. How do they weave it together over thousands of years and none of them knew each other because they died a thousand years before? How do they do that? You cannot make this stuff up. Uh, but, you know, Rahab and, and Ruth, and here comes David and Jesus. Like, no. Forever king. And if God can work in the small details of these two seemingly insignificant lives, isn't he up to in your life? Isn't he up to in your life? Isn't he successful when he introduces Naomi out? God uses all the little moments for one big redemptive story. The point is, you see, God's weaving a tapestry in your life, too. He's weaving something together in your life, too. And yes, it's messy. And you might be in one of those moments where it's just a jumbled ball of something. It's not even woven messy. It's just like a jumbled mess. You might be there right now. One of those gray times of clouds, and you probably only see the back side of the story. But he loves. He loves to work with little things. He loves to work through the day-to-day. He loves to work with just the faithful, trusting, kind, obedient decisions of his children. That's what he's doing with them. I think it's because it means he's going to be the one that gets the credit. He works through just the everyday mundane decisions of faithful obedience. But we have the privilege. We have the privilege of being part of that woven, big redemption story. I love what Piper said about it. He said, everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is significant. It's part of a cosmic mosaic. There's another word picture there, tapestry, which God is painting to display the greatness of his power and wisdom to the world and to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That means everything done in obedience matters. That means for the disciple of Christ, there is no insignificant sick bucket that's empty. There is no insignificant diaper that is changed. I mean it. There is no insignificant forgiveness granted. There is no insignificant day on the job. There's no insignificant prayer said at the bedside of a dying loved one. There is no insignificant prayer said in the closet. All of it matters. All is part of a big tapestry of life. That means the most mundane thing, a moment done in obedience, is sacred. Which is true to me. It's also a terrifying thing about part of God's big plan, really as it contributes to God's unfolding plan, that tapestry of the kingdom running on earth. You're part of it. You're, you're a character in that big story he's writing. Corey Tin Boom was a Dutch watchmaker. Somebody read this book, The Hiding Place, a few weeks ago, maybe. What a great story. Her family, uh, 
know, as Dutch watchmakers at a house or a shop during World War II, they helped a lot of Jews hide the Nazis out in front of the Jews' wedding by paneling the wall and learning how to wound a prisoner. And they risked their lives for the needs of people, to save the people, bring them in, get them in there. Stay quiet, but get in here. We will protect you as long as we can. They took a hard life. They actually went off to prison during that time to save lives for harboring Jews. And she left such a great legacy, a great place. Think about her life. It's called Life is But a Weaving. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the color. You weave it together. At times you weave with sorrow. Times you're with pride. You get pieces left under the underpants. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceased to fly does God unroll the canvas and reveal the beauty of the sky. The dark threads are as needful skillful hands, as the threads of gold and silver, the pattern of the sun, the nose, the love, the care, nothing this truth can lose, to give the very best to those who give the most. God unrolls the canvas, weaving these stories together. This is your God. obedience looks like yours is well off. Looks like theirs is what matters. Weaved by him. Someday we will see the truth. You know what it's going to be? That picture, it's going to really mess you in the back. Look close at me. It's going to be the sound of weaving. The sound of unrolling. True promise. a story like this, Lord, and I know there are that those of us today that we always live on the backside, and when we see the backside, and you know what, God, for whatever reason, in a mysterious way, you've chosen for the most part to show us the backside, and yet we see the front side of redemption more than anybody else in history because we live this side of Moab. We get to look at this story and go, Moab, Moab, Jesus line of Judah, Jesus, cross, death, resurrection. We get to see the front side that millions before us never saw. And yet they, they trusted the promises of Jesus. So help us trust today. 